Hello, and welcome to All Things Plantagenet. My name is Donnie Hazel, and I am your host. To all of my original listeners, welcome back. To those new to the show, welcome. I am a storytelling historian with a great love for the Plantagenet dynasty, as I am a direct descendant to Geoffrey of Anjou via my paternal line on my grandmother Carter's side. I descend through Diana Skipwith, daughter of Sir Henry Skipwith and Amy Kemp. Diana married Captain Thomas Carter. They immigrated to the Americas in 1650, settling in Barford in Lancaster County, Virginia. So with that said, please like and download the show as it helps other listeners learn about the show. If you wish to support this podcast, there is a link for you to do so, and it would be much appreciated as it would help with costs of maintaining the website www.allthingsplantagenet.com where you can find the podcast as well as extra items for each episode you can read or download. You can also find great books and videos for sale as well. Feel free to also visit our Facebook page. A link is provided as well on the website. Okay, on to the episode. Chapter 1 of King Richard I This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Andrew Wilson. King Richard I by Jacob Abbott. Chapter 1 King Richard's Mother King Richard I, the Crusader, was a boisterous, reckless and desperate man and he made a great deal of noise in the world in his day. He began his career very early in life by quarrelling with his father. Indeed, his father, his mother, and all his brothers and sisters were engaged as long as the father lived in perpetual wars against each other, which were waged with the most desperate fierceness on all sides. The subject of these quarrels was the different possessions which the various branches of the family held or claimed in France and in England, each endeavouring to dispossess the others. In order to understand the nature of these difficulties, and also to comprehend fully what sort of a woman Richard's mother was, we must first pay a little attention to the map of the countries over which these royal personages held sway. We have already seen in another volume of this series how the two countries of Normandy on the continent and of England became united under one government. England, however, did not conquer and hold Normandy. It was Normandy that conquered and held England. The relative situation of these two countries is shown on the map. Normandy, it will be seen, was situated in the northern part of France being separated from England by the English Channel. Besides Normandy, the sovereigns of the country held various other possessions in France, and this French portion of the compound realm over which they reigned they considered as far the most important portion. England was but a sort of appendage to their empire. You'll see by the map the situation of the River Loire, it rises in the centre of France and flows to the westward, through a country which was even in those days very fertile and beautiful. 
South of the Loire was a sort of kingdom, then under the dominion of a young and beautiful princess named Eleonora. The name of her kingdom was Aquitaine. This lady afterward became the mother of Richard. She was very celebrated in her day and has since been greatly renowned in history under the name of Eleonora of Aquitaine. Eleonora received her realm from her grandfather. Her father had gone on a crusade with his brother Eleonora's uncle, Raymond, and had been killed in the east. Raymond had made himself master of Antioch. We shall presently hear of this Raymond again. The grandfather abdicated in Eleonora's favour when she was about 14 years of age. There were two other powerful sovereigns in France at the time. Louis, King of France, who reigned in Paris, and Henry, Duke of Normandy, and King of England. King Louis of France had a son, Prince Louis, who was heir to the crown. Eleonora's grandfather formed the scheme of marrying her to Prince Louis, and thus unite his kingdom to hers. He himself was tired of ruling, and wished to resign his power, with a view to spending the rest of his days in penitence and prayer. He had been a wicked man in his day, and now, as he was growing old, he was harassed by remorse for his sins, and wished, if possible, to make some atonement for them by his penances before he died. So he called all his barons together, and laid his plans before them. They consented to them on two conditions. The first was that Eleonora should first see Louis, and say whether she was willing to have him for a husband. If not, she was not to be compelled to marry him. The other condition was that their country, Aquitaine, was not to be combined with the dominions of the King of France after the marriage, but was to continue a separate and independent realm, to be governed by Louis and Eleonora, not as King and Queen of France, but as Duke and Duchess of Aquitaine. Both these conditions were complied with. The interview was arranged between Louis and Eleonora, and Eleonora concluded that she should like the king for a husband very much. The interview was arranged between Louis and Eleonora, and Eleonora concluded that she should like the king for a husband very much. At least she said so, and the marriage was concluded. Indeed, the match thus arranged for Eleonora was in all worldly respects the most eligible one that could be made. Her husband was the heir apparent to the throne of France. His capital was Paris, which was then as now the great centre in Europe of all splendour and gaiety. The father of Louis was old, and not likely to live long. Indeed he died very soon after the marriage, and thus Eleonora, when scarcely fifteen, became Queen of France as well as Duchess of Aquitaine, and was finally raised to the highest pinnacle of worldly grandeur. She was young and beautiful and very gay in her disposition, and she entered at once upon a life of pleasure. She had been well educated. She could sing the songs of the troubadours, which was the most fashionable music of those days, in a most charming manner. Indeed, she composed music herself, and wrote lines to accompany it. She was quite celebrated for her learning, 
on account of her being able to both read and write. These were rare accomplishments for ladies in those days. She spent a considerable portion of her time in Paris at the court of her husband, but then she often returned to Aquitaine, where she held a sort of court of her own in Bordeaux, which was her capital. She led this sort of life for some time, until at length she was induced to form a design of going to the east on a crusade. The crusades were a military expedition which went from the western countries of Europe to conquer Palestine from the Turks in order to recover possession of Jerusalem and of the sepulchre where the body of Christ was laid. It had been for some time the practice for the princes and knights and other potentates of France and England to go on these expeditions on account of the fame and glory which those who distinguished themselves acquired. The people were excited, moreover, to join the crusades by the preaching of the monks and hermits who harangued them in public places and urged them to go. At these assemblages, the monks held up their symbols of the crucifixion to inspire their zeal and promised them the special favour of heaven if they would go. They said that whoever devoted himself to this great cause should surely be pardoned for all the sins and crimes that he had committed, whatever they might be. And whenever they heard of the commission of any great crimes by potentates or rulers, they would seize upon the occasion to urge the guilty persons to go and fight for the cross in Palestine as a means of wiping away their guilt. One of these preachers charged such a crime upon Louis, the husband of Eleonora. It seems that in a quarrel which he had had with one of his neighbours, he had sent an armed force to invade his enemy's dominions, and in storming a town, a cathedral had been set on fire and burned, and 1,500 people who had taken refuge in it as a sanctuary had perished in the flames. Now it was a very great crime, according to the Zaides of those times, to violate a sanctuary, and the hermit preacher urged Louis to go on a crusade in order to atone for the dreadful guilt he'd incurred by not only violating a sanctuary, but by overwhelmingly, in doing it, so many hundreds of innocent women and children in the awful suffering of being burnt to death. So Louis determined to go on a crusade, and Eleonora determined to accompany him. Her motive was a love of adventure and a fondness for notoriety. She thought that by going out, a young and beautiful princess at the head of an army of crusaders in the, into the east, she would make herself a renowned heroine in the eyes of the whole world. So she immediately commenced her preparations, and by the commanding influence which she exerted over the ladies of the court, she soon inspired them all with her romantic ardour. The ladies at once laid aside their feminine dress and clothed themselves like Amazons, so that they could ride astride on horseback like men. All their talk was of arms and armour and horses and camps. They endeavoured, too, to interest all the men, the princes and the barons and knights that surrounded them in their plans, and to induce them to join the expedition. A great many did so, but there were some that shook their heads and seemed inclined to stay at, at home. 
They knew that so wild and heedless a plan as this could end in nothing but disaster. The ladies ridiculed these men for their cowardice and want of spirit, and they sent them their distaffs as presents. We have no longer any use for the distaffs, said they, but as you are intending to stay at home and make women of yourselves, we send them to you, so that you may occupy yourselves with spinning. By such taunts and ridicule as this, a great many were shamed into joining the expedition, whose good sense made them extremely adverse to have anything to do with it. The expedition was at length organised and prepared to set forth. It was encumbered by the immense quantity of baggage which the Queen and her party insisted on taking. It is true that they had assumed the dress of Amazons, but this was only for the camp and the field. They expected to enjoy a great many pleasures while they were gone, to give and receive a great many entertainments, and to live in luxury and splendour in the great cities of the East. So they must needs take with them large quantities of baggage containing dresses and stores of female paraphernalia of all kinds. The king remonstrated against this folly, but all to no purpose. The ladies thought it very hard if, in going on such an expedition, they could not take with them the usual little comforts and conveniences appropriate to their sex. So it ended with them having their own way. The caprices and the freaks of these women continued to harass and interfere with the expedition during the whole course of it. The army of crusaders reached at length a place near Antioch in Asia Minor, where they encountered the Saracens. Antioch was then in the possession of the Christians. It was under the command of Prince Raymond, who has already been spoken of as Eleonora's uncle. Raymond was a young and very handsome prince, and Eleonora anticipated great pleasure in visiting his capital. The expedition had not, however, yet reached it, but were advancing through the country, defending themselves as well as they could against the troops of the Arab horsemen that were harassing their march. The commanders were greatly perplexed in this emergency to know what to do with the women and with their immense train of baggage. The king at last sent them on in advance with all his best troops to accompany them. He directed them to go on and encamp for the night on a certain high ground, which he designated, where they would be safe, he said, from an attack by the Arabs. But when they approached the place, Eleonora found a green and fertile valley near, which was very romantic and beautiful, and she decided at once that this was a much prettier place to encamp than the bare hill above. The officers in command of the troop remonstrated in vain. Eleanor and the ladies insisted on encamping in the valley. The consequences was that the Arabs came and got possession of the hill, and thus put themselves between the division of the army which was with Eleonora, and that which was advancing under the king. A great battle was fought. The French were defeated. A great many thousand men were slain. All the provisions for the army were cut off, and all the ladies' baggage was seized and plundered by the Arabs. The remainder of the army, with the king and the queen and the ladies, succeeded in making their escape to Antioch, and there Prince Raymond opened the gates and let them in. As soon as Eleonora and the other ladies recovered a little from their fright and fatigue, they began to lead very gay lives in Antioch, 
and before long a serious quarrel broke out between Louis and the Queen. The cause of this quarrel was Raymond. He was a young and handsome man, and he soon began to show such fondness for Eleanor that the King's jealousy was aroused, and at length the King discerned, as he said, proofs of such degree of intimacy between them as to fill him with rage. He determined to leave Antioch immediately and take Eleanor with him. She was unwilling to go, but the king was so angry that he compelled her to accompany him. So he went away abruptly, scarcely bidding Raymond goodbye at all, and proceeded with Eleanor and nearly all his company to Jerusalem. Eleanor submitted, though she was exceedingly out of humour. The king too, on his part, was as much out of humour as the queen. He determined that he would not allow her to accompany him any more on the campaign, so he left her at Jerusalem a sort of prisoner, while he put himself at the head of his army and went forth to prosecute the war. By and by, when he came back to Jerusalem and inquired about his wife's conduct while he had been gone, he learned some facts in respect to the intimacy which he had formed with a prince of the country during his absence that made him more angry than ever. He declared that he would sue for divorce. She was a wicked woman, he said, and he would repudiate her. One of his ministers, however, contrived to appease him, at least so far as to induce him to abandon this design. The minister did not pretend to say that Eleanor was innocent, or that she did not deserve to be repudiated. But he said that if the divorce was to be carried into effect, then Louis would lose all claim to Eleanor's possession for it will be recollected that the dukedom of Aquitaine and the other rich possessions which belonged to Eleonora before her marriage continued entirely separate from the kingdom of France and still belonged to her. The king and Eleonora had a daughter named Margaret, who was now a young child, but who, when she grew up, would inherit both her father's and her mother's possessions, and thus in the end they would be united. If the king and queen continued to live, live together in peace. But this would be all lost as the minister maintained in his argument with the king in case of a divorce. If you are divorced from her, he said, she will soon be married again, and then all her possessions will finally go out of your family. So the king concluded to submit to the shame of his wife's dishonour and still keep her as his wife. But he had now lost all interest in the crusade, partly on account of his want of success in it, and partly on account of his domestic troubles. So he left the Holy Land, and took the Queen and the ladies and the remnants of his troops back again to Paris. Here he and the Queen lived very unhappily together for about two years. At the end of this time the Queen became involved in new difficulties in consequence of her intrigues. The time had passed away so rapidly that it was now thirteen years since her marriage and she was about twenty-eight years of age, old enough, one would think, to have learned some discretion. After, however, amusing herself with various lovers, she at length became enamoured of a young prince named Henry Plantagenet, who afterward became Henry II of England and was the father of Richard, the hero of this history. Henry was at this time Duke of Normandy, he came to visit the court of Louis in Paris, and here, after a short time, Eleanor conceived the idea of being divorced from Louis 
in order to marry. Henry was a great deal younger than Eleonora, being then only about 18 years of age, but he was very agreeable in his person and manners, and Queen Eleonora was quite charmed with him. It was not, however, to be expected that he should be so much charmed for her. Although she had been very beautiful, she had now so far passed the period of her youth, and had been subjected to so many exposures that the bloom of her early beauty was in a great measure gone. She was now nearly thirty years old, having been married twelve or thirteen years. She however made eager advances to Henry, and finally gave him to understand that if he would consent to marry her, she would obtain a divorce from the King Louis, and then endow him with all her dominions. Now there was a strong reason operating upon Henry's mind to accept this proposal. He claimed to be entitled to the crown of England. King Stephen was at this time reigning in England, but Henry maintained that he was an usurper and he was eager to dispossess him. Eleanor represented to Henry that, with all the forces of her dominions, she could easily enable him to do that, and so at length the idea of making himself a king overcame his natural repugnance to take a wife almost twice as old as him, and she too the divorced and discarded wife of another man and so he agreed to take Eleanor's proposal, and measures were soon taken to effect the divorce. There is some dispute amongst the ancient historians in respect to this divorce. Some say that it was the king that originated it, and that the cause which he alleged was the freedom of the queen in her love for other men, and that Eleanor, when she found that the divorce was resolved upon, formed the plan of beguiling Henry into marriage with her to save her fall. Others say that the divorce was her plan alone, and that the pretext for it was the relationship that existed between her and King Louis, for they were in some degree related to each other, and the rules of the Church of Rome were very strict against such marriages. It's not improbable, however, that the real reason of the divorce was that the King desired it on account of his wife's loose and irregular character while Eleonora wished for it in order to have a more agreeable husband. She never had liked Louis. He was a very grave and even gloomy man, who thought of nothing but the church, and his penances and prayers, so that Eleanor said he was more of a monk than a king. This monkish turn of mind had increased upon the king since his return from the Crusades. He made it a matter of conscience to the where coarse and plain clothes instead of dressing handsomely like a king, and he cut off the curls of his hair, which had been very beautiful, and shaved his head and moustache. This procedure disgusted Eleanor completely. She despised her husband herself and ridiculed him to others, saying that he had made himself look like an old priest. In a word, all her love for him was entirely gone, both parties being thus very willing to have the marriage annulled. They agreed to put it on the ground of their relationship in order to avoid a scandal. At any rate, the marriage was dissolved and Eleanor set out from Paris to return to Bordeaux, the capital of her own country. Henry was to meet her on the way. Her road lay along the banks of the Loire. Here she stopped for a day or two. The Count who ruled this province, who was a very gay and handsome man, offered his hand he wished to add her dominions to his own. Eleanor refused him. The Count resolved not to take the refusal, 
and under some pretext or other he detained her in his castle, resolving to keep her there until she should consent. But Eleanor was not a woman to be conquered by such a method as this. She pretended to acquiesce in the detention and to be contented, but this was only to put the count off his guard, and then, watching her opportunity, she escaped from the castle in the night, and getting into a boat which she had caused to be provided for the purpose, she went down the river to the town of Tours, which was some distance below, and in the dominions of another sovereign. In going on from Tours towards her own home, she encountered and narrowly escaped another danger. It seems that Geoffrey Plantagenet, the brother of Henry, whom she had engaged to marry, conceived the design of seizing her and compelling her to marry him instead of his brother. It may seem strange that anyone should be so unprincipled and base as to attempt thus to circumvent his own brother and take away from him his intended wife. But it was not a strange thing at all for the members of royal and princely families of those days to act in this manner towards each other. It was the usual and established condition of things among these families that the different members of them should be perpetually intriguing and manoeuvring one against the other, brother against sister, husband against wife, and father against son. In a vast number of instances, these contentions broke out into open war, and the wars thus waged between the nearest relatives were of the most desperate and merciless character. It was therefore a very moderate and inconsiderable deed of brotherly hostility on the part of Geoffrey to plan the seizure of his brother's intended wife in order to get possession of her dominions. The plan which he formed was to lie in wait for the boat which was to convey Eleonora down the river and seize her as she came by. She, however, avoided this snare by turning off into a branch of the river which came from the south. You will see the course of the river and the situation of this southern branch on the map. The branch which Eleanor followed not only took her away from the ambush which Geoffrey had laid for her, but conducted her towards her own home, where, after meeting with various other adventures, she arrived safely at last. Here Henry Plantagenet soon joined her, and they were married. The marriage took place only six weeks after her divorce from her former husband. This was considered a very scandalous transaction throughout, and Eleanor was now considered as having forfeited all claims to respectability of character. Still, she was a great duchess in her own right, and was now wife of the heir apparent of the English throne, and so her character made little difference in the estimation in which she was held by the world. From the time of her first engagement with Henry, nearly two years had elapsed before all the proceedings in relation to the divorce had been completed so as to prepare the way for the marriage, and now Eleanor was about thirty-two years of age, while Henry was only twenty. Henry seems to have felt no love for his wife. He had acceded to a proposal to marry him only in order to obtain assistance which the forces of her dominions might supply him in gaining possession of the English throne. Accordingly, about a year after the marriage, a military expedition was fitted out to proceed to England. The expedition consisted of 36 ships and a large force of fighting men. Henry landed in England at the head of this force and advanced against Stephen. The two princes fought for some time without any very decisive success on either side, 
when at length they concluded to settle a quarrel by a compromise. It was agreed that Stephen should continue to hold the crown as long as he lived, and then that Henry should succeed him. When this arrangement had been made, Henry returned to Normandy, and then, after two or three years, he heard of Stephen's death. He then went immediately to England again, and was universally acknowledged as king. Eleanor went with him as queen, and very soon they were crowned at Westminster with the greatest possible pomp and parade. And thus it was that Eleanor of Aquitaine, the mother of Richard, in the year 1154, became Queen Consort of England. End of chapter 1「2 of King Richard the First. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. King Richard the First by Jacob Abbott, Chapter 2. Richard's Early Life. Almost all the early years of the life of our hero were spent in wars which were waged by the different members of his father's family against each other. These wars originated in the quarrels that arose between the sons and their father in respect to the family property and power. Henry had five sons, of whom Richard was the third. He also had three daughters. The king held a great variety of possessions, having inherited from his father and grandfather, or received through his wife, a number of distinct and independent realms. Thus he was Duke of one country, Earl of another, King of a third, and Count of a fourth. England was his kingdom, Normandy was his great dukedom, and he held besides various other realms. He was a generous father, and he began early by conveying some of these provinces to his sons, but they were not contented with the portions that he voluntarily assigned them. They called for more. Sometimes the father yielded to these unreasonable demands, but yielding only made the young men more grasping than before, and at length the father would resist. Then came the rebellions and the leagues formed by the sons against the father, and the mustering of armies and battles and sieges. The mother generally took part with the sons in these unnatural contests, and in the course of them the most revolting spectacles were presented to the eyes of the world, of towns belonging to a father, sacked and burned by the sons, or castles beleaguered, and the garrisons reduced to famine, in which a husband was defending himself against the forces of his wife, or a sister against those of a brother. Richard himself, who seemed to have been the most desperate and reckless of the family, began to take an active part in these rebellions against his father when he was only seventeen years old. These wars continued with various temporary interruptions for many years, and whenever at any time a brief peace was made between the sons and the father, then the young men would usually fall into quarrelling amongst themselves. Indeed, Henry, the oldest of them, said that the only possible bond of peace between the brothers seemed to be a common war against their father. Nor did the king live on much better terms with his wife than he did with his children. At the time of Eleanor's marriage with Henry, her prospects were bright indeed. 
people of England, notwithstanding the evil reports that were spread in respect to her character, received her as their queen with much enthusiasm, and on the occasion of her coronation, they made a great deal of parade to celebrate the event. Her appearance at that time attracted unusual attention. This was partly on account of her personal attractions and partly on account of her dress. The style of her dress was quite oriental. She had brought home with her from Antioch a great many eastern fashions and many elegant articles of dress such as mantles of silk and brocade, scarfs, jeweled girdles and bands and beautiful veils such as are worn at the east. These dresses were made at Constantinople and when displayed by the Queen in London they received a great deal of admiration. We can see precisely how the Queen looked in these dresses by means of illuminated portraits of her contained in the books written at that time. It was the custom in those days in writing books, the work of which was all executed by hand, to embellish them with what were called illuminations. These were small paintings inserted here and there upon the page representing the distinguished personages named in the writing. These portraits were painted in very brilliant colours and there are several still remaining that show precisely how Eleonora appeared in one of her oriental dresses. She wears a close headdress with a circlet of gems over it. There is a gown made with tight sleeves and fastened with the full gathers just below the throat where it is confined by a rich collar of gems. Over this is an elegant outer robe bordered with fur. The sleeves of the outer robe are very full and loose and are lined with ermine. They open so as to show the close sleeves beneath. Over all is a long and beautiful gauze veil. The dress of the king was very rich and gorgeous too and so indeed was that of all the ecclesiastics and other dignitaries that took part in the celebration. All London was filled with festivity and rejoicing on the occasion, and the Queen's heart overflowed with pride and joy. After the coronation, the King conducted Eleonora to a beautiful country residence called Bermondsey, which was a short distance from London, toward the south. Here there was a palace and gardens and beautiful grounds. The palace was on an elevation which commanded a fine view of the capital. Here the Queen lived in royal state. She had, however, other palaces beside, and she often went to and fro among her different residences. She contrived a great many entertainments to amuse her, such as comedies, games, revels, and celebrations of all sorts. The king joined with her in these schemes of pleasure. One of the historians of the time gives a curious account of the appearance of the king and the court in their excursions. When the king sets out of a morning, you see multitudes of people running up and down as if they were distracted. Horses rushing against horses, carriages overturning carriages, players, gamesters, cooks, confectioners, maurice dancers, barbers, courtesans and parasites, making so much noise and, in a word, such an intolerable tumultuous jumble of horse and foot that you can imagine the great abyss hath opened and poured forth all its inhabitants. It was about three years after Eleanor was crowned Queen of England that Richard was born. At the time of his birth, 
the Queen was residing at the palace in Oxford. The palace had gone pretty much to ruin. The building is now used in part as a workhouse. The room where Richard was born is roofless and uninhabitable. Nothing even of the interior of it remains except some traces of the fireplace. The room, however, though thus completely gone to ruin, is a place of considerable interest to the English people, who visit it in great numbers, in order that they may see the place where the great hero was born. For desperate and reckless as Richard's character was, the people of England are quite proud of him on account of his undaunted bravery. It is very curious that the first important event of Richard's childhood was his marriage. He was married when he was about four years old. That is, he was regularly and formally affianced, and a ceremony which might be called the marriage ceremony was duly performed. His bride was a young child of Louis, King of France. The child was about three years old. Her name was Alice. This marriage was the result of a sort of bargain between Henry, Richard's father, and Louis, the French king. They had had a fierce dispute about the portion of another of Louis's children that had been married in the same way to one of Richard's brothers, named Henry. The English king complained that the dowry was not sufficient, and the French king, after a long discussion, agreed to make it up by giving another province with his daughter Alice to Richard. The reason that induced the King of England to effect these marriages was that the provinces that were bestowed with their infant wives as their dowries came into his hands as the guardian of their husbands while they were minors, and thus extended, as it were, his own dominions. By this time the realms of King Henry had become very extensive. He inherited Normandy, you recollect, from his ancestors, and he was in possession of that country before he became King of England. When he was married to Eleonora, he acquired through her a large addition to his territory by becoming jointly with her the sovereign of her realms in the south of France. Then, when he became King of England, his power was still more extended, and finally, by the marriages of his sons, the young princes, he received other provinces besides though, of course, he held these last only as the guardian of his children. Now, in governing these various realms, the king was accustomed to leave his wife and his sons in different portions of them, to rule them in his absence, though still under his command. They each maintained a sort of court in the city, where their father left them, but they were expected to govern the several portions of the country in strict subjection to their father's general control. The boys, however, as they grew older, became more and more independent in feeling, and the Queen, being a great deal older than her husband, and having been, before her marriage, a sovereign in her own right, was disposed to be very little submissive to his authority. It was under these circumstances that the family quarrels arose that led to the wars spoken of at the beginning of the chapter. Richard himself as was there stated, began to raise rebellions against his father when he was about 17 years old. Whenever in the course of these wars the young men found themselves worsted in their contests with their father's troops, their resource was to fly to Paris in order to get King Louis to aid them. 
This Louis was always willing to do, for he took great pleasure in the dissensions which were thus continually breaking out in Henry's family. Beside these wars, King Eleonora had one great and bitter source of trouble in a guilty attachment which her husband cherished for a more beautiful lady, more nearly his own age than his wife was. Her name was Rosamond. She is known in history as Fair Rosamond. A full account of her will be given in the next chapter. All that is necessary to state here is that Queen Eleonora was made very wretched by her husband's love for Rosamond, though she scarcely had any right to complain, for she had, as it would seem, done all in her power to alienate the affections of her husband from herself by the levity of her conduct and by her bold and independent behaviour in all respects. At last, at one time, while she was at Bordeaux, the capital of her realm in Aquitaine, she heard rumours that the king was intending to obtain a divorce from her, in order that he might openly marry Rosamond, and she was determined to go back to her former husband, Louis of France. The country, however, was full of castles which were garrisoned by Henry's troops, and she was afraid that they would prevent her going if they knew of her intention. So she contrived a plan of disguising herself in man's clothes and undertook to make her escape in that way. She succeeded in getting away from Bordeaux, but her flight was soon discovered, and the officers of the garrison immediately set off a party to pursue her. The pursuers overtook her before she had gone far and brought her back. They treated her quite roughly and kept her prisoner in Bordeaux until her husband came. When Henry arrived he was quite angry with the Queen for having thus undertaken to go back to her former husband, whom he considered as his greatest rival and enemy, and he determined that she should have no opportunity to make another such attempt. So he kept a very strict watch over her and subjected her to so much restraint that she considered herself a prisoner. The king had a quarrel also at this time with one of his daughters-in-law, and he made her a prisoner too. Soon after this he went back to England, taking these two captives in his train. In a short time he sent the queen to a certain palace which he had in Winchester, and there he kept her confined for sixteen years. It was during this period of their mother's captivity that the wars between the father and his sons waged most fiercely. At length, in the year 1182, in the midst of one of the most violent wars that had raged between the king and his sons, a message came to the king that his son Henry was very dangerously sick, and that he wished his father to come and see him. The king was greatly at a loss what to do on receiving this communication. His counsellors advised him not to go. It was only a stratagem, they said, on the part of the young prince to get his father into his camp and so take him prisoner. So the king concluded not to go. He had, however, some misgivings that his son might be really sick and accordingly dispatched an archbishop to him with a ring which he said he sent to him as a token of his forgiveness and of his paternal affection. Very soon, however, a second messenger came to the king to say that Prince Henry had died. These sad tidings overwhelmed the heart of the king with the most poignant grief. He at once forgot all the undutiful and disobedient conduct of his son and remembered him only as his dearly beloved child. He became almost broken-hearted. 
The prince himself on his deathbed was borne down with remorse and anguish in thinking of the crimes that he had committed against his father. He longed to have his father come and see him before he died. The ring which the archbishop was sent to bring to him arrived just in time, and the prince pressed it to his lips and blessed it with tears of frantic grief. As the hour of death approached, his remorse became dreadful. All the attempts made by the priests around his bed to soothe and quiet him were unavailing, and at last his agony became so great that he compelled them to put a rope around him and drag him from his bed to a heap of ashes placed for the purpose in his room that he might die there. A heap of ashes, he said, was the only fit place for such a reprobate as he had been. So will it be with all undutiful children, when on their deathbeds they reflect on their disobedient and rebellious conduct toward the father and the mother to whom they owe their being. It is remarkable how great an effect a death in a family produces in reconciling those who before had been at enmity with each other. There are many husbands and wives who greatly disagree with each other in times of health and prosperity, but who are reconciled and made to love each other by adversity and sorrow. Such was the effect produced upon the minds of Henry and Eleonora by the death of their son and heir. They were both overwhelmed with grief, for the affection which a parent bears to a child is never wholly extinguished, however undutiful and rebellious a child may be. And the grief which the two parents now felt in common brought them to a reconciliation. The king seemed disposed to forgive the queen for the offences, whether real or imaginary, which she had committed against him. Now that our dear son is dead and gone, he said, let us no longer quarrel with each other. So he liberated the queen from the restraint which he had imposed upon her, and restored her once more to her rank as an English queen. This state of things continued for about a year, and then the old spirit of animosity and contention burned up once more, as fiercely as ever. The king shut up Eleonora again, and a violent quarrel broke out between the king and his son Richard. The cause of this quarrel was connected with the Princess Alice, to whom it will be recollected Richard had been betrothed in his infancy. Richard claimed now, since he was of age, his wife ought to be given to him, but his father kept her away and would not allow the marriage to be consummated. The king made various excuses and pretexts for the delay. Some thought that the real reason was that he wished to continue his guardianship and his possession of the dower as long as possible. But Richard thought his father was in love with Alice himself, and that he did not intend that he, Richard, should have her at all. This difficulty led to new quarrels, in which the king and Richard became more exasperated with each other than ever. This state of things continued until Richard was thirty-four years old, and his bride was thirty. Richard was so far bound to her that he could not marry any other lady, and his father obstinately persisted in preventing his completing the marriage with her. In the meantime, Prince Geoffrey, another of the king's sons, came to a miserable end. He was killed in a tournament. He was riding furiously in the tournament in the midst of a great number of other horsemen, when he was unfortunately thrown from his steed and trodden to death on the ground 
by the hoofs of the other horses that were galloped over him. The only two sons that were left now were Richard and John. Of these, Richard was the oldest, and he was, of course, his father's heir. King Henry, however, formed a plan for dividing his dominions between his two sons, instead of allowing Richard to inherit the whole. John was his youngest son, and, as such, the king loved him tenderly. So he conceived the idea of leaving to Richard all his possessions in France, which constituted the most important part of his dominions, and of bestowing the Kingdom of England upon John, and in order to make sure of the carrying of this arrangement into effect, he proposed crowning John King of England forthwith. Richard, however, determined to resist this plan. The former King of France, Louis the Seventh, was now dead, and his son, Philip the Second, the brother of Alice, reigned in his stead. Richard immediately set off for Paris and laid his case before the young French king. I am engaged, he said, to your sister Alice, and my father will not give her to me. Help me to maintain my rights and hers. Philip, like his father, was always ready to do anything in his power to foment dissension in the family of Henry. So he readily took Richard's part in the new quarrel, and he somehow or other contrived means to induce John to come and join in the rebellion. King Henry was overwhelmed with grief when he learned that John, his youngest and now dearest child, and the last that remained, had abandoned him. His grief was mingled with resentment and rage. He invoked the bitterest curses on his children's heads, and he caused a device to be painted for John and sent to him, representing a young eaglet picking out the parent's eagle's eyes. This was to typify him his own undutiful and unnatural behaviour. Thus the domestic life which Richard led while he was a young man was embittered by the continual quarrels between the father, the mother and the children. The greatest source of sorrow to his mother, however, was the connection which subsisted between the king and the Lady Rosamond. The nature and the results of this connection will be explained in the next chapter. End of chapter 2